You'll never believe this. A pastor and a rabbi walk into a podcast to discuss how faith and tradition should inspire but not limit us. Yeah, we talk about stand-up comedy, surfing, religion, family issues, Doritos, hemorrhoids, the bears, and absolutely nothing at all. You'll have so much fun, you'll never believe we're actually religious leaders. Hey everybody, welcome to You'll Never Believe This with Haim Leiter and Ralph Super. Thanks for listening. The day we're recording this is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and so we're going to focus primarily on his work, his legacy, and how we can continue to do the work that MLK was really focused and driven and called to. And so thanks for listening. Jamie, welcome. How are you? Doing well, man. How about yourself? I'm good. I actually saw my chiropractor first thing this morning. I had a injury that needed to be cleared up and he did great. Uh, but what was quite interesting on topic is uh, my chiropractor is an African-American man. And um, so one of the first things I said just to my chiropractor, not because he's black, uh, is I was surprised you guys were open today, but I really appreciate it because I was in pain. And he said, this is, and this is telling of who he is, but also the effect um, that MLK has had on him and the effect of racism upon his life in general. He said that he considers the legacy that Martin Luther King Jr. left didn't create a privilege for him to take the day off, but gave him the opportunity to serve. And I thought that was huge to think about it in that way. And especially for a black man to think about it that way. You, you know, it, it. I think we often think of it as this um, this gift. And I think for me, I always, I take other holidays throughout the year that I don't even know why or how they exist. We talked about Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, yeah. In Rhode Island, they still celebrate Victory Over Japan Day. We don't honor those things in any sort of way right. other than, hey, I get a day off. Like, I've earned a day off, even though it's totally ridiculous. When he didn't see it as an opportunity to stop working or not do uh, what he's gifted at and has the privilege of doing, but he wanted to honor MLK Jr.'s work by serving people. And I thought that was that was remarkable, and that was a huge yeah. testament uh, both to this chiropractor and just his his integrity, but also to um, the work that we honor and celebrate and try and remind ourselves every year of what we haven't done to really become more uh, equal, undivided, and appreciative of people of all different um, races. How is it that um, that you honor this uh, this day and MLK Jr.? So I'll tell you, I have, it's very interesting to hear those sort of similar echoes. When I was studying uh, in rabbinical school in New York, um, the founder of the school, his name is Rav Avi Weiss, and he is an activist and a rabbi, started the school where I went, and he um, did a lot of work in helping to free Soviet Jewry, the Soviet Jews who were being oppressed and, uh, and arrested for just being Jewish in the former Soviet Union. And he, I think, was majorly influenced by Dr. King, um, as I think I was as well. Um, and he used to say uh, every, mon every Monday that his birthday was celebrated, that was his term. It's a day on. It's not a day off. And we would come in and we would, we would change our learning. Normally we learn traditional, you know, rabbinic texts all day long. And the day was devoted to learning about Dr. King. Um, so that had a, that had a pretty profound uh, influence on how I saw the day. But I think even before, even before that, I think my, um, my parents were majorly influenced by him as well. My mother always talks about being at one of his uh, rallies and one of his, and heard one of his speeches live which I think was majorly uh, a part of who she is and who we are as people. I think she, or they sort of imparted that to us as well. Um, and I personally am always excited when this time of year comes around because he and I almost share a birthday. So my birthday is tomorrow, uh, is Tuesday, January 19th. And we always seem to almost overlap. So um, I always felt this sort of kindred uh, spirit with him. And I, th I think most people around the world, as you said, most people around the world, uh, they feel something to sort of inspiring in his story. Um, when did you, I mean, when did you first learn about him? What did you, I mean, tell me more about your connection to him. You know, I, 
we let's let's talk about um, growing up and kind of the the, the influence after. But um, I don't think I was really directly affected um, by Martin Luther King Jr. as more than a history lesson until um, just after my junior year of college. I took a year off and worked uh, for City Year, which is an AmeriCorps program, and City Year has several values uh, that they really instill. It's, it's in, in, in intentionally instill in people. Um, things like being the change you want to see in the world. And um, they consistently talked about Martin Luther King Jr. and his impact on equality and how, how we need to see the world. Um, and what I really appreciated was uh, we got to talk about it and digest it and also reflect on how our personal lives and uh, upbringing affected our prejudices, biases, and, and racism in general, uh, because I've, I'd never had a chance to do that. We learned about, again, we learned about him and the, the social justice movement as a history lesson, something that happened in the past, not as something that we continue to take a part of now. And so um, in that time, I remember, you know, picking up on a lot of quotes and beginning to really um, understand my place in, in a system. And, and, um, I still remember several of, of the things he said. One of my favorites is we must learn to live together as brothers or we will perish together as fools. Yes. And, um, I thought that was, that was powerful for me at the time because I was, um, I was already, I was already a well-trained leader from summer camp and churches. Um, I was, like I said, I'll, I'll, just before my senior year of college, so I had a good education under my belt. But the program I was in also accepted uh, students as early as 18 who had high school diplomas. And most of the people who came right out of high school to AmeriCorps um, either didn't want to go into the military or couldn't get into college but didn't know what to do. So they thought they'd, they'd make a year of difference. And, and a lot of them were just struggling with identity and, and wanting to party and um very, you know, kind of selfish lifestyles. And so for me, it was, it was difficult to figure out, okay, how do I work with these people? And, um, and so just hearing that quote, learning how to live together as brothers uh, was extremely helpful. It was also an incredibly diverse environment. Um, you know, we had people of, of dozens of different races and um, it was powerful to really explore that in that context. Whereas my high school, where I learned again as a history lesson, was primarily white. I think we had maybe two African American families. We had one Greek family that was also incredibly diverse for us. I, I can't, <laughs> I can't really think of one Mexican family. There was probably one or two, but um, yeah. So, so hearing about it in a diverse context that I was wrestling with, not the diversity of. But the, uh, I guess, the, the, the quality of life and the education and kind of the values, I think that that hit hard. How about for you? Where did you really begin to absorb some of MLK Jr.'s works? And what was nice for me, I think, is that we had very different sort of upbringings in that way. Uh, the, the high school that I went to was, I like to say it was about 50-50 split. Um, it was, you know, there was a lot of diverse population in the high school um, to the point at which um, I, one thing I was, I felt was missing was I don't feel like I had a lot of friends who weren't Jewish and white. Like that's sort of the, the place that I sort of found my comfort zone. in, if you will, I mean, I think there was one person I was friendly with in, in high school who was black and we, you know, I, I, re, I had a good connection with him and, and, and in school, I think everyone sort of flowed in between. It wasn't like, you know, we had pockets of these people are, you know, th this group sat in this table, that group sat at that table. It was a lot of intermingling. And I never felt that anyone sort of um, ostracized any one group or, or any people or tried to stay away from specifically any group. There was no talk of, uh, of people's uh, race as, as sort of a derogatory thing in general. But what was interesting was when I got to college, I think things kind of flipped. There was a, the, the diversity of our, uh, we both went to the University of Rhode Island, if you're a first time listener, welcome. Um, but the at the University of Rhode Island, things sort of, um, I think we're opening up. I think more uh, minority students were starting to come to the school. And I thought, and I think that that was adding a lot to the school, but I think the school was not 
anywhere where I was. I sort of came in with sort of a knowledge of these sorts of things, maybe almost innately. And I remember I was sitting in our traditions and transformation class, which was a URI 101. And there was a certain area of campus that was called the ghetto. Do you remember this yeah. area of campus? Yeah. All right. So this is an, I thought this was the most fascinating story. The teacher of the, of the course um, said, why is that area called the ghetto? And one of the students said, oh, because that's where all the black people live. He said it like so matter-of-factly, and I was already under my desk expecting he, him He said to it like dead. he was proud of himself that he got the right answer. <laughs> not exactly. That. And I was like, oh my God, you can't say that. Like, you just don't say that. That's not, number one, it's not right. But two, I feared for his life. I really was like, dude, you could die right now. Where I come from, you don't yeah. say things like that. It's just known. So, huh. so what happened was, just to sort of bring the, 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 the story full circle, which was very interesting, was that the woman said, actually, that you know, people bounced around a lot of different answers. And it was true that a lot of minority students lived in that area of campus, but it wasn't that, that wasn't the reason it got the term the ghetto. The reason it was called the ghetto was because at one point they were actually redoing this, the buildings and they put those huge containment units in there, right? You know, those things that like you they look like a big dumpster. So it's everyone a thought, storage container, yeah. Exactly. It's to store things. And people thought it was a dumpster and they started throwing their trash on top, thinking it was going <laughs> in because they couldn't see that it was so high up. They couldn't see it wasn't going into anything. And then all of the garbage opened up and things were flying everywhere and it looked like a ghetto. And that's why it got its name. So mm. it sort of like flipped everything on its head, which was awesome. I thought that was actually one of the best classes. So that's a good example of of how you experienced um, diversity, racism, prejudice. But what about specifically your, we had asked about your experience of Martin Luther King Jr. and his impact quotes and that kind of stuff. How did you experience him? So, um, so actually, I spent a lot of time uh, toward the middle of my time studying in rabbinics to actually research and look into him as a person. Um, I read his autobiography, which was edited by Claiborne Carson. Um, it's an interesting book. It's, it's actually more interesting because somebody pointed out that he who's, never who's the author? Wrote. Who's the author of his autobiography? <laughs> so this is the interesting part. Your joke is a good one because somebody, I mentioned it to someone and they said he didn't write an autobiography. So basically what the book is, is a lot of collections, I think, of different writings of his and they called it his autobiography. Mm, compilation so it's, memoir. Yeah. It's, it's compilation of memoirs. But um, a couple of things that he said that I found extremely powerful by the way, I hope someone someday t- takes my journal and says this should be a book because it'll just be ridiculous. And, like I feel like you read those things about these famous no. folks, and it's like, oh, those are profound and amazing. And my journal is like, had a good poop this morning. <laughs> the funny part is like, do you, do, you th- do you think that he knew when he was sitting down and writing in his journal, he was like, someone could one day read this. I better not write that. Yeah, that's the right. Like, like uh, when I write, I, I actually have, uh, I struggle with that. When I started journaling, I was writing as if someone was going to read it. So I would like correct things and proofread. And luckily I had a therapist who was like, who are you talking to? Who's reading this? Who, who are you sending it to? I said, I, I don't know, but what if someone reads it? She's like, it's not for them. Anyway. It's for you. Right. So but now, now this, this contributes to my fear because his personal journal is published. Anyway, continue. So yeah, this is definitely, you should fear. Um, but what's interesting, I just think about him as a person. Number one, he, um, he talks about in the, in the book that he actually was, uh, felt sort of like he fell victim, victim to, not victim to, but it was, he was part of what's called Zeitgeist right, in German, that he, he felt like this whole movement, it was going to happen one way or another. He just happened to be there at that time. And when we talk about leadership way back when, in a, you know, one of our first episodes, um, and the burden of leadership, I remember asking you, you know, do you feel that you were born to greatness or greatness was thrust upon you? And I think what's amazing is that you look at Dr. King, who was definitely one of the modern great leaders, and he totally thought that this whole thing wasn't him, that he didn't do it. He was just part of something in history that sort of uh, convalesced, you know, at one point, and he was just there, and he was just the person who needed to give it a voice. That's um, such BS, I, though. I mean, it's it's just it's, it's just a humble man, you know what I mean? Because it's, it's obviously him stepping up to a greater need in the world that millions of other people could not do. You know what I mean? Like, right. so what he's right. saying is basically if he lived now, he would be a part of the organic food movement. You know what I mean? Like he'd suddenly be the- <laughs> He'd sell the, green goods at the- Be the at voice the, uh, for, yeah, for, 
for, for <laughs> farmers markets and such. And you're like, no, I, I think you were destined for this. And really the movement was on his shoulders in a lot of ways. So you got oh, to, sure. to, to really digest a lot of that in seminary, which is interesting alongside your rabbinic studies. How did that affect your, um, your focus on ministry and learning for your career? I, it gave me sort of, I'll tell you one thing that it did. It sort of gave me a focus that um, one needs to always have in mind all of the people around you and treat them with the greatest and utmost of respect, especially those people who might need more help. I think if one thing that one of my teachers sort of in his actual synagogue demonstrated that he would always reach out and say hello to almost every single person in his synagogue on Shabbat, but if there was somebody of special needs, he was always there to give them a hug. And they and people, I mean, that that to me was just sort of the how important it is to reach everyone and make sure that everyone feels a part of what you're doing. That that was first and foremost. When I when I actually left his school and came to Israel to study, that's when I picked up this autobiography and I decided to sort of continue my learning of who he was as a man and sort of what his philosophical underpinnings were. And I and I think. One of the things that's disappointing for me is that since I don't have an actual synagogue of my own, Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I missed something in that way. I don't feel like I'm the quote unquote, you know, classic cookie cutter leader. And some of my, some of my sort of acceptance in being here in Israel and what was going to be my life when I stayed, when I decided to stay here was I knew that I wasn't going to go and sort of lead some sort of movement necessarily or lead a group of people in that way. And it was very, it was hard for me. I really felt like I had to make an active decision to, to say goodbye to that sort of dream. But again, if you're going with this humility that he had, he didn't feel like he did it. He, he, he just was there when it happened and stepped up. There's an amazing, actually, I'll say one more thing. I just have an, there's an amazing um, uh, teaching in what's called Pirkei Avot, which is the teachings of the fathers which is part of the Mishnah, but it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, grouping of teachings where everything is almost like you could put it onto a magnet and stick it on your refrigerator. Um, and, and I think one of the teachings that really I relate to, to him is that it says, in a place where there is no man, <laughs> in a place where there is no man or person, step up and be the person to sort of do what need be done. And I think that's spot on. Cool it's all be the change thing. And I hear you what you're saying about, you know, not having your own community that that was a lot of what resonated with me of his um, beloved community works and the quotes about, um, you know, his goal was that there was a beloved community. Um, he said something adding to it about um, that a beloved community requires a qualitative change in our soul uh, and a quantitative change in our lives. So we need to change how we measure our lives and who we yet interact with, but it, it starts with the quality of our soul. You know, it starts with, with yourself and um, that community for those of us who, you know, who's in seminary, we're learning how to cultivate um, healthy communities that have dialogue and, and uh, compassion. That was powerful stuff. Now, growing up, um, you mentioned you were ju- you were just outside of Philadelphia, which is incredibly diverse. For me, growing up, I didn't grow up in an incredibly diverse area, but it was interesting how I just never I never had a sense of 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 racism being. Uh, I, I just couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand how people could inherently see somebody else's color of their skin or know their nationality of origin, and suddenly have these. Uh, negative ideas about them. Now, let me clarify. I think we all have prejudice that that comes from a place of kind of self-defense and helpfulness. But if we act in negative ways against that another person because of a negative experience, that's when it becomes racism, right? Like if I had a bad experience at, um, at a certain restaurant, Anytime I go to a similar restaurant, I may go, yeah, I'm not sure this is going to be a great experience, but let me see how to help that. Let me see how to, you know, how to give it a, the benefit of the doubt and not just treat it as the same, you know, the same as the last time. You could have bad experiences that inform how you're going to make future decisions, but if it's all going to be negative, it becomes racism. So we all have our prejudices, but racism for me was always a, a deal breaker, you know, and I just didn't, I didn't accept it. I didn't hang out with it. 
Um, I didn't want to be a part of it. Um, it wasn't until, I mean, probably I, when I became a pastor that I realized just that, that, that we can't just be covert about not being racist, but we need to be overt about changing the system because we're so privileged to be able to have a voice in this game where black folks, for instance, don't have, when they say uh, racism is bad or we, you can't treat people this way, they're seen differently than when I say. And, and that's, I'm not, I, you know, I, I realize I'm privileged and, and I thought just being not, not being racist was the solution when really the solution is being anti-racist. And as, as leaders, what MLK Jr. has taught is that as leaders, we have a greater responsibility to be overtly anti-racist. And so again, I was talking to my chiropractor and I said, you know, one of the suggestions someone had for me to help um, in this movement uh, was to post uh, on social media that I had, um, I see, I saw this chiropractor and just let people know it's a, you know, with a picture or something that it was a black chiropractor and post that the, my, the, one of my favorite Peloton instructors, instructors is a black instructor. And I thought that's just seems racist in itself. Like how self-serving is it? Like, look at me, I'm, I'm about equality. I have a black chiropractor and a black, uh, uh Peloton coach. Um, but there's, there's this whole world of people that just don't talk about it and then it doesn't make a change. And I struggle with that because I think as Christians, um, you know, our goal is to be more like Christ and to see it's all about how Jesus informs our life and, and changes how we live. And so it's not about what I do or how I do it, but we also have to realize that if people don't see us living that way, they don't see the change that Christ made in our lives to be more equal and appreciative of people um, because of their differences, not despite of uh, their differences. So yeah, I wrestle with that because I grew up just being not racist. And now the message is you got to be anti-racist. You got to fight against it. You got to promote equality uh, vocally from the podium and, and make it a very real intentional act. What, um, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I hear, I hear what you're saying. And it's sort of like, in my mind, um, I, I don't know if I would turn it, I would term it anti-racist. What I would term it as is, is definitely more proactive, right? I think a lot of people have gotten complacent in the world as it is today. And they think that when they see, they don't see anything in front of them. They don't actively see anything negative. They don't see someone being racist, then it doesn't exist. Right. My personal experience is one that doesn't exist. It doesn't, I don't experience racism on a daily basis. So where would it possibly be? And that's the very sort of narrow way of looking at the world. Right. If, if one were to say, okay, there's a lot of things that like the classic example is if it, right, that we all think about, I think is if somebody says something racist or tells a joke that's racist, then if I don't say anything, I didn't do anything racist. But at the same time, you didn't do anything to stop racism from occurring. You didn't say to that person, I really don't like humor like that. Please don't say that. Right? That's anti-racist, so right? That's right. That, I don't love the term anti-racist, but I think I like the term being proactive to fight racism, right? Not to be a passive fighter of racism, meaning in myself alone. And I sit in my room and I said, I never said uh, any racist jokes in my life. What's the problem? And saying, no, I'm actually going to, like you said, seek out ways to show people or seek out ways to make things uh, better for other people, more equal, more open. And like, especially as a leader, right? As a spiritual leader, you have the opportunity to start these conversations and you definitely have the obligation to do that. And so what, and yeah, so, but what I'm hearing in the world is that um, it's easy and privileged to be pro the positive but it's challenging and confrontational to be against the negative, right? So it's easy for me to just live my life appreciating and, and equal, being equal to all people. But when I hear a racist joke or I see a company that has, you know, all white folks, it's a challenge to, to me and my privilege to say, hey, this isn't right or call it out. But that's what uh, those, uh, minority and 
blacks and Mexicans and all other races, that's what they need us to do. They need people to speak essentially from the inside and say this to call out the negative because that's stronger. That sort of gives up this sense of, you know, if, if I'm not in direct harm of a racist joke, it's much easier and safer to be quiet because if I call out my buddies who make a racist joke, they're not going to like me. But I would honestly rather live in a world where there are no racist jokes and I'm not liked by a couple of folks sure. than to be liked and know that there's a whole class and race of people who are being put down by it. You know, and that's the hard work of being, you know, that we need to do to make this change. We can't just sit by, by complacent, complicit anymore to this racism and say, well, I'm not racist, so it's not a problem. It's still a problem because we're not stopping it. And I think that's the other that's the other thing is a lot of racism comes from a sense of entitlement and privilege. And so it's going to take people calling out that entitlement and saying, look, we get that you don't see it, but it doesn't mean it's not wrong. You know, I sure. had an 84 year old uh, man who had a wonderful career. Um, and in a meeting, he said something that was sort of diet racist oh, nice. uh, low calorie yeah. it was it, it was racist okay I, I, maybe there aren't, maybe there aren't it's <laughs> like it's not maybe it's not maybe it's like being a little pregnant right he said, like Here, pregnant. i'll say what he said he said why don't we hire one of those mexicans to do it oh yeah so that's what i mean he wasn't you know and so i said you know it's not really appropriate to talk that way and he said, well, what do you mean? I've been, I've been saying this my entire life and they're cheaper. They work harder uh, and a few other things. Oh God. And I thought, and I said, that doesn't mean it's not racist. And I felt like that was healthier to call out in that moment in a public meeting with his peers than, um, than to just sit back and allow that because, you know, you give them the benefit of the doubt and that, that behavior continues. But you, you know, you call out the negative, you, you, you give it some negative punishment for the bad behavior, and that begins to diminish, or at least he sees that. And it's a blow to his, you know, ego and entitlement. But the hope is that everyone has some sense of self-reflection and how they're a part of this. And, you know, my biggest concern in the, as it gets to, as racism gets to the public realm in groups, um, and uh, protests and things like that is that people are quicker to react and get violent or uh, loud or shut down and not be a part of a conversation than they are to say, I, I don't understand what you said about not saying Mexican. I don't understand it. I've never done it, but can you tell me more or can I listen to find out more? And we need people to be more curious about those things than self-defensive and angry when they find those things out. You know, when I was, when I was younger, um, I might've even been 11. You just brought up this memory for me. I, I used to, we used to go visit my grandfather in New York and uh, down in Boca Raton where all Jewish grandparents go. And, you know, we would go visit him in Florida uh, during the winter. And it was like our vacation. And I remember this one time we were driving together uh, somewhere around Boca. Now, obviously there's going to be a wealth gap of a huge, you know, margin in those areas. Um, and, and he, I remember we were driving and we crossed the train tracks and he turned to me and it was, I think it was just the two of us in the car. And he said, all the blacks live on the other side of the train tracks. And I remember even at 11 years old, I came back to my, I didn't say anything to him. And I came to my parents and I said, how, how could he say that? Yeah. And my parents said, no, you have to understand he's from a different time period, like all that language that you were using. And it, it, it actually pained me to hear him say that because like, I mean, all the more so just to even hear it, right? Like you said, but all the more so when it's your grandfather and you're sort yeah. of sitting there trying to digest this person that you love so dearly. Uh, well, I might've been a stretch for him, but I did love him very much. <laughs> <laughs> but a person that I definitely, you know, loved and cared about in my family who said these things that to me, I knew just that even in the middle school years, that was an important thing to say, you can't say that. And to be told by my parents, I'm sorry, you can't say anything to him. Yeah. You know, it's like, I just had to like sit on my hands, if you will, and not, and not say anything. And you're right. 
The only thing I would I wanted to ask you, I want to just challenge you a little bit about your story and, and let me know what you think about this. How much do you think it was necessary to call him out in a public forum? Meaning when we do in Judaism, there's this big, uh, one of our fundamental tenets is to, like embarrassing someone. This was the, uh, it was this great, I think uh, I'm not mistaken, the rabbi who said it, um, it speaks a lot about what's called Lashon Hara, and I, wanna, I actually wanted to tie that into something else as well. But Lashon Hara is talking like, um, you know, gossiping about other people, saying bad things about other people. He actually takes it to the level where it's even talking about another person at all, he says, is not, you should never, when that person is not there, you should never do. I think that's a bit of a stretch. His, his name is the Chafetz Chaim, was one of, that was his name. Um, and he said to, to, when somebody spoke ill about one of the rabbis in the town, um, he came afterwards when the rabbi found out about it or whatever and wanted to apologize and said, Rabbi, I'm so sorry that I did that. And he said, he said, what can I do to make it better? And he said, come with me. And he took him up to the top of a tower, like a clock tower. And he had a feather pillow with him and he opened it into the wind and the feathers went everywhere. And he said, if you want to fix this, go, you, you should just go collect those feathers. And like, from, from where I sit, I always struggle with what you, what you had to do at that moment, because I know how important it is. And, and like I said, I'm diehard for standing up and saying the right thing when it needs to be said, but how much do we do it in the, in the public sphere and how much do we do it in the private sphere? I think in general, yeah, I, I, I agree that um, I always stand by the, the phrase you um, praise in public critique and confidence. Mm. However, when there are millions of people for all of time who are being oppressed and put down, and a lot of it is because a behavior has been enabled by other people who wouldn't speak up against it. I, I felt like it needed to be at least called out and said, if you want to be a part of this community, this is not appropriate. And it becomes safer for other people to call it out. You know, again, as an elite, as a leader, people are always watching my behavior, whether I like it or know it. And what I call out in public is more likely to go away than something that nobody saw. And if I did not call it out, I just allowed and enabled him to do that and told the eight other people in the room that it was okay, even if they would never do it. And those eight people may say to themselves, I don't want to be a part of a mm -hmm. community where this is allowed. And I was going to say, so that's bad. why I think that's why, you know, it's perpetuated for so long. People like me are in my position who were afraid to call out that systemic, pervasive, bad behavior uh, on a larger scale. And, and, and I talk with a lot of preachers who are wrestling with this and, um, oftentimes, no matter what we say on, the, on either side of any issue, we take heat from the opposite side. And we just have to be ready to say, was it worth it? And to be honest, on racism, it, it, it's become worth it um, to have some good friends uh, who have been consistently beat up and burnt and not allowed the same opportunities. Um, and it's a generational thing. It's not just, you know, the flavor mm -hmm. of the week. So I think it's worth it in, the, in that instance, for sure. I was going to say, when I asked the question, and I remember, I also didn't know what was the demographic of the group that you were sitting there amongst. Like if I, if I were sitting there in a room and he said something and totally didn't realize or was saying it in a way that I felt like definitely put another person down in the room, it wouldn't be a question that you had to say it in a public way. You know, you had to sort of come to the defense of the people who were being talked ill of, you know what I mean? Like, that's not a question, you know what I mean? But, um, and I guess I'm also being what we call Don Lechaf Scoot, which means um, I'm being overly, um, uh, I give a lot of people a lot of credit, meaning the one person you said who said this, I would never think that that would give anyone else the permission to say it as well. Do you know what I mean? Like I thought that I, I imagined the rest of the room, like you had 99% of the room who was on the side of, they would never say something like that. And everybody's right, rolling their like, eyes. Oh, yeah. God. Right. And then, so did you need to do it for everybody else? Don't know. But like, I hear you, there's definitely there's definitely a need at this point, I think, in a lot of ways to to come to the aid and defense of others. But my, but 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 mine wasn't. I didn't think anyone else would ever say something like that. I don't know, but I don't think they would have. But they need to know 
that it's safe for them to call out that bad behavior. No, that's no, you modeled it because they're in more, they're in more direct connection with the 800 members of our church and the people in their work and schools um, than I am. And so if, if, if they have the okay and realize that, that a better behavior is to call out that bad behavior, then they're more likely to do it. So sure. yeah. I, and, and that doesn't happen often. Don't, don't get me wrong. Don't, you know, especially those people listening, don't think that this happens daily in my church. It's a <laughs> rare you. occasion um, both that it happens and that the pastor hears it. But I think it's, it's incredibly powerful for uh, a leader to call that out to, to really show people, Hey, this is, this is the culture we want to be a part of. And, you know, King calls it uh, the beloved community. And the more that we, you know, cut out the bad behavior and reinforce the positive behavior, the more people either adapt to be a part of it or, um, find another place. And to be honest, if people are finding another place and want to hold on to their racism, I'm okay with that. Mm. So I'll tell you that um, sort of in a similar vein to this, one of the things I thought of is uh, there's, a, there's a story in, um, if I'm not mistaken, it's in Devarim. It's in uh, uh, the final book of the five books of Moses. Lean it towards your mic. How, uh, sorry, thank you. Um, as he was as, as Moses was sort of leading the people and things were getting to that point where um, they were coming close to the, to the promised land, um, there were different times where people challenged his leadership, but there was one in particular where um, his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron um, spoke ill of him and said, why does, Moshe, why does Moses get to talk directly to God? Why don't we get to speak directly to God? Um, and they started questioning also his leadership abilities. And then they said this, this phrase, which is, you know, and that, that he took this Kushite woman. I don't know if you ever remember, if you remember this actual phrase, but this phrase for me always struck Kushite woman was always sort of understood as someone who was of darker skin. And um, I always remember hearing it and sort of reading the commentaries on it and feeling like I was listening to my grandfather say that they lived on the other side of the tracks again, you know, and I went like, oh God, they, they, they just don't get it. But what's amazing is, which I never realized until I was just, just thinking about this, is that if you, if you actually think that, that Miriam and Aaron were saying that about Moshe's wife, because that's who they're speaking about, Sipora, if they were actually calling her into question that way, and as horrible as that might be to sort of think about our, some of our you know, leaders of our people saying something like that. The response that God gives at that point is that he strikes Miriam with leprosy. And, and it's almost like you said, and the whole community, right, couldn't move from their camp where they were to the next spot until she was healed of that, which took 30 days. Um, and so what's amazing to me, I always sort of read it as like a Oh God, I can't believe I have to read this again. Every year we read the same things over and I'm like, Oh God, here we go with my, you know, the, 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 but then I thought of it as like, wow, God really responded to that and responded in a way that said, sorry, that type of a, a discussion, that type of language is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I think that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's important um, for us to consider the other part about what, what we as leaders and people with a voice and a podcast can do. Um, but it's a challenge is to continue to uphold the nonviolent value that Martin Luther King Jr. had where, you know, he consistently allowed himself to be berated and even beaten and spit on and didn't engage in that same behavior, you know, and I think on the public discourse for people to see uh, that is, is it's almost, it's, it's depressing to see a man in that situation, see anyone in that situation, but it also tells a story of a, of a greater value. You know, we would call it, you know, a higher power that Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't into this fight. He wasn't in for a tit for tat. Like you punch me, I'll punch you back. You yell at me, I'm going to yell back. You swear and curse, I'll swear and curse. He was in to say when he when he committed to nonviolence, when he committed to a beloved community, when he committed to be anti-racist, he lived it a hundred percent. And so it's another you know sort of greater responsibility, higher challenge for us because uh, it's easier to punch back. It's harder 
to say, I see your pain when you hit me, or I can see that you're vulnerable, you know, you're struggling with being vulnerable when you yell and get loud. But that's what we need to be to end racism. We need people who are willing to stand by this 100% and take the blows. Um, and the other thing I've seen just recently um, in the you know, in the pastor's conversations is the one time a leader or a pastor that I've seen does fight back, does use nasty language, does give a low blow. It's over. They're no longer credible in the, in the world of ending this thing, right? They're just as bad as those, uh, the, the, the racists who are making those attacks, but by trying to engage in dialogue and trying again and forgiving and then offering another opportunity, um, we're, we're offering a better way uh, for those folks. And, and again, it's a, it's a harder work, but I think it's, it's worthwhile, uh, to engage with our brothers and sisters. And I love, I love hearing from and, and, and reading from, uh, leaders of all different races who are undoubtedly a hundred percent committed to this without, uh, without compromising anything. For sure. I have a couple of quotes here from Dr. King that um, if you just, I'm just going to read them off. And if you feel like you want to, uh, you want to weigh in, feel free to weigh in. The first of which is, um, he said, this is very powerful. He said, racial injustice around the world, poverty, war. When man solves these three great problems, we will have squared his moral progress with his scientific progress. And more importantly, he will have learned the practical art of living in harmony. I thought it was an amazing thing to sort of put, uh, equate um, both the moral progress and the scientific progress, because we have, especially now, made a lot of leaps in scientific progress. And, and I feel like what he would be sitting here if he were alive today and still be saying, yeah, but how much have we done to, to forward our moral progress? Um, I, I don't know if we will have even come close to living up to his, to his hopes, but I think we've gotten somewhere. I think we can always do better. Um, another one he said is, I'm convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We, we must rapidly begin to shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. Again, just the mere thought of, wait a minute, wow, we're going to take and think about where we are in our thing-oriented society today. How far have we come um, in sort of everything being at a push of a button, which we've talked about before, um, and say, God, there are so many more things in our lives, definitely more toys in our lives than we've ever had before. Um, but if only we had uh, more focus on the people around us, how much further would we be? And especially if we saw all of them as our equal people, that would be an amazing thing. Um, another thing that he talked about, which was also really powerful, um, he, he, I, we, we have before have spoken, as I said already, we've already spoken a bunch about leadership. Um, and I think when we spoke about leadership, I told you that uh, uh, my teacher uh, also spoke about how all leadership starts as a solitary endeavor and only later do people follow. Um, Dr. King said, um, I say to you this morning that if you have never found something dear or so precious that to you that you're willing to die for it, then you aren't fit to live. And from just from the fact that I live here in Israel, like that's sort of a daily refrain for me, that just being yeah. here and being part of forwarding the Jewish uh, mission in this way has always made me feel like I'm living for, uh, for something uh, well beyond me. But the, the more amazing thing that he said about leadership was that no matter what you do, I'm actually going to quote it inside because it just, it doesn't get any better this. Don't ever think when you're leading that you're by yourself. Go to jail if necessary, but you never go alone. Take a stand for that which is right, and the world may, under, may misunderstand you and criticize you, but you will never go alone. For somewhere I read that one with God is a majority. That alone to me just, it, it, he, he, how alone must he have been and how, how amazing must it have been that he you know, had to have these sort of constant refrains for himself to keep himself motivated. Yeah. And just the, the personal integrity that goes into, you know, reminding yourself, I, I struggle with, with just being true to who I want to be. You know, I have to like yeah. remind myself sometimes for things as simple as, you know, I haven't been eating, um, 
sugar or heavy carbs for a while, just I feel better and for no other reason. And the other day, somebody brought in donuts and I didn't know donuts were coming. And I thought, I'll have a donut. And then I felt terrible. I have to remind myself, hey, <laughs> you're not somebody who eats donuts all the time anymore. Yep. Yep. I want to tell you this. This is, I want to say two more things before we wrap up. One of which, just to bring, full, I think, full circle with Dr. King, an amazing story at the end of this book where he talks about how he was signing autographs in New York City and he and, and a woman walked, a crazed woman walked up and stabbed him in the chest. Jeez. And thank God he, at that point he was saved. Um, and he said that he got a lot of letters uh, wishing him well during that time in the hospital. He said um, he got letters from, I think he said he got a letter from the president. He couldn't remember what, you know, what it said from the vice president. Couldn't tell you what was in there. He said, but there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl who was a student at White Plains High School. And I looked at the letter and I'll never forget it. It said simply, Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. While, I, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering. And I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. And I'm simply writing to say to you that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. <laughs> Just an amazing, I mean, and, and he, he, he said here at the very last piece of this, when the, when the book is wrapping up, he talked about, he used all the same sort of language of when Moses is sitting there looking at the promised land and he, he, he can't go in. And he said, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm ever gonna get to go in. I, I can see the promised land. I can see where we're supposed to get to. Um, but all I know is that I need to do God's will. And that was his sort of, that was sort of how they closed the book. Um, it, it was just for me, the whole, the whole book, I, I said, just getting prepared for this, for this talking to you about it. I, I want to read the whole thing all over again. Yeah, that's wonderful. And you, I mean, you get a, a beautiful sense just from some of his writings um, in his private journal, or at least to, at some point he thought it was private. <laughs> Um, you, you get a sense of how dedicated he was oh, to this and, and how private peaceful. journal. Is that what we call Twitter now? I forget. Is that yeah, Twitter exactly. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, just how, how dedicated he was to this and, uh, you know, internally. And it was, it was true to the very fiber of his being. And I, you know, we just pray that more people come along and to carry that message, but also, uh, people are more open to hearing, you know, how to change and affect that. And I think, you know, in the past year with um, political tension and some of the violence and systemic issues um, with beatings and uh, police involvement, you know, corrupt police involvement, uh, it's been disheartening to see that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s message might be falling away. Um, but we have to remind ourselves and take, take note of the little victories. You know, I, in the past couple of weeks, we've, um, we've been celebrating the first, uh, African-American vice president who will, uh, take office this Wednesday. And, um, at first I, I thought, you know, like, again, somebody who, who grew up kind of appreciating all folks inherently, um, I thought, why do we need to say that she's the first African-American vice president. And then a friend of mine um, who is white, her husband's Mexican, and they have a, a, a black daughter. They said when Kamala Harris was uh, elected, essentially, she looked at the TV and she says, she looks like me, mom. Mm. And she said it in a way that she had a great deal of pride. And I thought, I wonder if there are entire races of people who were born a certain way, thinking that they didn't have certain opportunities simply because they didn't win the lottery of being white. Mm. It's just totally unfair, you know, so we can celebrate, you know, Kamala Harris. The, the other one that's not as, not as prevalent is uh, the, uh, the bachelor there. It is the first African-American bachelor right now on the, on the TV what? show, the bachelor. And there's that, a lot that of people. pops all exactly. <laughs> and there, and I, I just kept thinking, why do we need to keep saying he's an African-American bachelor? He's a great guy. I mean, he's a lot better than the last guy, <laughs> but, um, but that might not be saying much, but again, I think it's, it's representation, right? If, sure. if a huge percentage of the world is not white, why mm -hmm. is it that all of the bachelors and all of the uh, vice presidents in the past have been white males, you know, 
we're not that aren't inherently smarter or better at these things. There's just some system that kind of keeps them down. So anytime we can celebrate, it adds to uh, all that. I just want to add in that um, I think just in the last couple of days, I only noticed it last night because we like to talk about these sort of things. So I'm going to end it on our comedy note. Chris Rock came out with a new special on Netflix, but it's actually just the extended version yeah. of uh, Tambourine, right? But I don't know if you watched any of it. Did you start to watch it yet? So I just turned it on last night and watched the opening bit. And it is, it's Chris Rock on, you know, being interviewed by Jimmy Fallon on the, you know, Tonight Show. And he is, first of all, killing it. I mean, he kills it. That's number one. But number two, in, in just amazingly that it came out right now, and maybe it was intentional, I have no idea, he spent that whole bit when he's talking to Jimmy Fallon, talking about the first time he went to the White House. And he talks about how it was when Obama was president and, it was, you know, and everybody was coming and it was like Jay-Z was there, um, Oprah was there, like all these people, all these black people were there. And, and he sort of was just slang. I mean, it's really one of his best. I mean, he's so funny anyway. But, and then all of a sudden he goes, which is what I love when comedians do this, he said, I mean, we were there in the White House, a place that slaves built. And there is a guy in front of us who is the president of the United States. Just that alone, I think Dr. King would be very happy with, you yeah. know, Obama and now Kamala. Like there's, there's definitely more representation and thank God for that. But we, we all know we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Hey, I'd love to close out now with um, an opportunity to do the work that we're advocating for and to invite our listeners to end with just a minute uh, of silence before we close. And if you've listened this long, please continue to uh, engage uh, in this, but just in silence for a moment and meditating on how can you help uh, contribute to equality and, and racism in the world uh, and honor the values of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So we'll spend a moment in silence and then I'll, I'll close out and we'll, um, we'll end the podcast for today. Thanks so much for uh, being a part of this moment of silence and honoring this legacy. May God bless the life, death, and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And may our lives reflect his work in all that we do and say. Thank, thanks so much, everybody. Hopefully you enjoyed the episode. Like, subscribe, and share wherever you're listening. And we'll see you next week. Jamie, good chatting with you. Thanks so much. Always good, Ralph.